0: Our scripture lesson today is found in two places. It's found, first of all, in Matthew chapter 1 and Genesis 38. So let us stand for the reading of the Word of God. I'm going to read Matthew 1, 1 through 3, and then also 16 the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of God, a son of David, the son of Abraham. To Abraham was born Isaac, and to Isaac Jacob, and to Jacob Judah and his brothers. And to Judah were born Perez and Zerah Tamar, And to Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron Ram. And to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Then in Genesis 38, we'll read the entire chapter. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. And he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. And she born still another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Kezeb that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her, And raise up offspring for your brother. And Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So it came about that when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and so he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheepherders in Timna. he and his friend Hira the Adolamite. And it was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is coming up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Sheila had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. Judas saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she'd covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He said, Therefore, I'll give you a kid from the flock. She said, Moreover, will you give me a a pledge until you send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, Your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on the widow's garments. When Judah sent the kid by his friend the Adolamite to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of her place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who was by the road at Inna'im?" But they said, There has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, There has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, Let her keep them, lest we become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this kid, but you did not find her. Now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot. And behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, Please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. And Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I inasmuch as I did not give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not have relations with her again. And it came about at the time she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth, one put out a hand And the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on the hand, saying, This one came out first. But it came about, as he drew back his hand, that, behold, his brother came out. Then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So his name was Paris. And afterwards his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. You may be seated. You know, one of the reasons why I had Frank Brito preach here twice, two weeks, not only because I wanted to hear him preach, I didn't want to preach on Genesis 38. And I was hoping that... I I, I was hoping that... uh, that Wayne Rogers would come to date. <laughs> so I wouldn't have to preach another time on this. But the more I studied this passage of Scripture, the more I see some of the greatest and most practical and fundamental truths in the Word of God are found in this passage. Now remember what this whole section is, 37 through 50. It is the story of the outcome of Jacob's life, which was Joseph. The most important contribution Jacob made was Joseph. And so that's what this last whole section of, of Genesis is about. So why did they interject this story in a section that's about the life of Joseph? I think for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's about Judah, and Judah was the great-great-great-granddaddy of Jesus. Everybody in this little story was a member of the Church of God. So the title of my sermon, The Church's Desperate Need for a Savior, that the church and its spirituality in Jacob's day had declined greatly, as you can see, that Canaanite philosophy, religion, immorality had so pervaded this family that they lived and acted more like Canaanites than like Christians. Church always needs a Savior. It can never live without Christ for one second. Here we see the church of God and the ancestors of Jesus. Several of these people, at least three of them, were ancestors of Jesus. To let you know, and that's why we read the genealogy in Matthew, to let you know that Jesus came to save sinners And some of the biggest sinners in the Bible are his direct ancestors. To let you know that he came to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There's a second reason why this is interjected. Remember what the whole story is so far. The whole story is that Joseph's brother sold him into slavery and to Egypt because Joseph had a a vision from God that he was going to be the Savior of his family, Savior from the famine, Savior from the death by hunger, Savior from sin. And in order to be that Savior, he had to be humbled and humiliated rejected, despised by men, left for dead, sold into slavery so that he could get to Egypt and wind up being the most powerful man in all of Egypt. And as the most powerful man in all of Egypt, he was able to rescue his family. And he was able to save them. As we go on and study the life of Joseph, you're going to see there's one thing in Joseph's mind. Joseph's trying to lead his brothers to repentance. He's trying to lead his family to repentance. And you read the rest of Genesis and see if that's not the case. So those are the two reasons, I think, why this story is interjected in the life of Joseph. Tell us about the church and the spiritual condition of the church and its need of a Savior. And secondly, let you know that the church is better off in slavery in Egypt than to be prospering in the promised land and be controlled by Canaanite morality the point. God gave the children of Israel the promised land. They're to live there. They're to prosper there. But at this point in their life, they were so influenced by Canaanite low morality, Canaanite religion, Canaanite lifestyle, that if they'd remained in Canaan any longer, they would have been absorbed into the Canaanite culture and would no longer exist as a distinct family and as a distinct church. So why did God send Israel to Egypt and put it in slavery? Save you from hell. So as you read this story, This is not just an interesting little historical event. Jesus, God knew that if the sons of Jacob stayed there any longer as it was, they would just be absorbed by the Canaanite culture. There would never be a Savior because there would never be a continuing Israelite family. There'd never be a Savior, and you would have no salvation from hell. So this just isn't just a little story. It's telling us about the gospel. That God thought that his people were better off as slaves in Egypt incubated in the land of Goshen. By the way, the land of Goshen in Egypt was the best real estate in the entire country of Egypt. Egypt. But then God sold them into slavery because they were better off incubated as slaves in Egypt than as free people in the promised land being dominated by Canaanite culture. People often ask me, why are things going the way they are, Joe? I mean, the whole world's on fire. You got wars everywhere you got wars Ukraine and Russia you got wars that continue to expand in the Middle East uh, you have China you have uh, declining economy and morality in the United States the world seems to be on fire and that fire seems to be dark so what do you think's happening Joe? think God is purging us from Canaanite culture. That the church has been dominated by unbelief and by humanism so long that God's now humbling us and putting us into slavery and maybe even darker slavery. Because it's better for us to be humiliated in slavery than to live under the dominance of Hebrew, I mean of of Canaanite unbelief. And that's where the church is today. The church lives in this land that God gave us. Pilgrims, Plymouth Rock, the Puritans at Jamestown. He gave us this country. And how do we live in this country? Like pagans. So he thinks the best thing to do now Is to put them back in slavery where they'll be isolated. Canaanite influence. So you remember the great point of this story. It's better for the church to be a slave in Egypt than to be dominated by Canaanite low morality. And once God has purged that low Canaanite morality out of the church today, then we go back to the promised land. But let's look at this chapter. There's a lot of sins committed in this chapter. They're ugly sins. And they're committed by the church or by the ancestors of Jesus. And what's the first sin committed in Genesis 38? What's the first sin? uh, Jacob marries a Canaanite woman. That's the mother sin, you might say, of everything else that takes place in this chapter. He marries a non-Christian. He knows better. But he caves in to his lusts and sexual drives, which he did not have control of. And he marries this Canaanite woman. And he invites the world into the church. He invites the ungodly into the bosom of his own family. And what do you think is going to happen after that? The family's all going to be pure and godly after that? Nope. The Canaanite woman is a poison. The compromise is a poison. The synthesis of Jacob in marrying a non-Christian poisons the whole family. Don't marry non-Christians. If you find somebody that shows you affection, somebody that makes you laugh, don't convince yourself he or she is a Christian when you know in your heart they're not. You're just hoping with crossed fingers that they might be so you can uh, marry them and God can be happy with you for marrying a Christian. How often has that happened? Where people have convinced themselves that who they're falling in love with is a Christian when in fact they know they're not So, the first sin that's committed here is Judah marrying this Canaanite woman, and then everything starts going downhill after that. And then uh, uh, Jacob had some children, he had a son. Uh, in verse 3, his wife gave him a son called Ur. And then after a while, she conceived again, gave Jacob another son. All these are half-breeds now, No notice. She conceived and bore a son and named him Onan. And she bore still another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Chezeb that she bore him. Now it's Judah's responsibility to make sure that these sons marry properly. So, In verse 6, Judah takes a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name is Tamar. And she's the rest of this story. So, Jacob's first son by this Canaanite woman was a man named Ur who was so wicked God had to kill him. Verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord God himself took his life. God killed him. He was so wicked. Now the rest of this story is based upon a a practice that God himself has established in the Old Testament. Let me read it again. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. And Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So it came about that when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother, who's dead. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord killed him. So the first two sons of Jacob's marriage to this Canaanite woman God killed now what was Onan's sin that was so displeasing in the eyes of the Lord that God killed him you're not going to understand that unless you understand Deuteronomy chapter 25 there was a thing in Old Testament Israel established by God later clearly said in the Mosaic Law, called the Leveret Marriage. Lever, L-E-V-I-R, literally means a husband's brother. And this Leveret Marriage was instituted by God and commanded in God's law. So let me read it to you. Let's start with Deuteronomy 25, verse Now, who who wrote ultimately Deuteronomy 25? This is the Word of God. So if you see anything unjust or impure in this chapter, I'd be ashamed. Because you're putting your own standards above the standards of Almighty God. And brothers live together, verse 6, and one of them dies and has no son. The wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out from Israel. If the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him, And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. This is the word of God. And she shall declare, Thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And in Israel his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. Now, what is all that about? Let me just summarize for you. If a man dies, and he doesn't leave a male heir, he's married, his wife still living, but he doesn't have a male heir, then his brother, the dead man's brother, is to take the responsibility of marrying the dead man's wife and having a male child by her. And if he doesn't, it shows his unfaithfulness to God and his lack of loyalty to the covenant bond. It's called the levirate marriage. Now, what was the purpose of it? Several things. It was to make sure the widow was taken care of. Because in those days, a widow could start a death. It was to make sure that a man's property would stay in his family and not be squandered above other families. It was to make sure that godly families would, would thrive and ungodly families would perish. It was to guarantee that the dead man's name would always be in the history books and the registry of Israel. He wouldn't get lost in history. That he wouldn't disappear. His name would all a name would always be there in the registry of the people of God. Now you say, Well, I thought that the Bible says that the only kind of marriage is monogamous. That the only kind of marriage that God approves of is one man and one woman. Monogamous marriages. And that is absolutely true, except for this one modification that God made. Man didn't modify this. It's God modifying his own law, which he has the perfect right to do. And he says there's one exception to monogamy, only one. That is this leverant marriage. When a man dies without a male son, his his brother is to marry his widow and have a child by her. The child is not to be given the new father's name. The child is to be given the name of his deceased because the brother in law, the brother is uh, fathering a child in the widow, so that the dead brother's name will continue. Now there is a, another very important reason for this law. And that is to make sure that the ethnic ethnic Hebrews Remain on the real estate of Palestine. I'll explain that in just a minute. Say, are we supposed to still have levirate marriages? <clears throat> well, it has a long history. You see, levirate marriages all the way back to Genesis thirty-eight. Then there is a law written here in the Mosaic legislation. Commanding the Leverett marriage. And then you have a whole book in the Bible based upon the levered marriage. You know what book that is? Ruth. Book of Ruth is about a woman who's a widow seeking a lever, L E V I R, a kinsman redeemer. Somebody that would marry her and raise up a child by her. Man can never modify God's law. God can. In the Reformation, both John Knox and John Calvin thought Leverett marriages were still intact. Uh, Today, in the East, Middle East, Middle East, there's many, many Christians and churches that still practice liberate marriage. And Rush Dooney said that once the Christian family is restored in all the world, levirate families' marriages would quietly take their place in society. I think he's dead wrong think Calvin was wrong. I think Knox was wrong. Because the Leverett marriage was not to last forever. It was to keep the ethnic Hebrews on a piece of real estate in the Middle East a people and a place until the Savior of the world would be born. The Bible says salvation is of the Jews. And for a Jewish people to maintain themselves throughout history, they always have to have a geographical location. They've got to maintain themselves as a race on that geographical location. And once In the scheme of things, the Hebrews give birth to Jesus in Palestine. There's no need for levered marriages. There's no need for keeping Canaan real estate in the hands of the Jews because now the promised land is the whole world. And Jesus Christ has been born and now he is the savior of countless numbers of people from all kinds of ethnic groups. So if you're confused by all that, that's okay. Just realize, you, you men, you don't have to marry your brother's wife. But you see, God was very displeased with him. Now what does it say about Onan? Onan. Onan was supposed to marry this widow and raise up a child for her in his name. Why was God so angry with him that God killed him? Because Onan was not willing to, to uh, obey his covenant responsibilities. They were absolutely important back in that generation of things. And so God killed him. Now, see what else happened. Thirty eight. So Judah, in verse eleven, goes to his daughter in law Tamar, says the wrong thing. Uh, two men have died who've been married to her. Ur her and Onan. At this point, Judah's becoming superstitious. I only have one son left. He's real young. And, but he's the one that's got to marry Tamar now. And there must be something about Tamar because two men have married her and died. And I don't want my younger son to die. By the way, Becky and I had a very good friend in Bristol, Tennessee. (laughs) She outlived five husbands. But anyway, (laughs) anyway, so uh, Judas, uh, Judas is being superstitious. He's forgotten that the reason Ur and Onan died is not because they were married to Tamar, but because they were evil. So God killed them. So Tamar, uh, I mean, Jacob, Judah's acting like a superstitious person. So he said, in verse 11, said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who's still a young woman, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Sheila grows up. But he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now, there you see a sin that uh, Judas, Judah later repents of, putting off Tamar's wedding, putting off her being married to a godly man. Here's a woman who wants to be married, needs to be married, could be married, but Judah is superstitious. Verse 12. Now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Hera the Adullamite. And it was told to Tamar Behold, your father in law is going up to Timnah to shear the sheep. So. She saw the opportunity. She's tired of being unmarried. She wants a child. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Inaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Sheila had grown up, and she had not been given to him as a wife. So she dresses up like a prostitute, and she goes down to the gateway of the city. Why the gateway of the city? That's where all the politicians were. That's where all the men went, the judges were. That's where court was held. And Judah was a judge. So she wants to entrap him. So Judas saw her, and he thought she was a prostitute. For she covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here, now, let me come to you. For he didn't know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me? that you may come to me. How much am I going to get for this? So here's a patriarch. One of the leaders in the church cannot control himself. So he sees this woman, he thinks he's a prostitute. She's a prostitute. So he's going to treat her like a prostitute. And she says... uh, what do you think my price is? Verse 17 He said, therefore I'll give you a kid from the flock. You're worth at least a baby goat. He said, moreover now here's where she gets very smart. Will you give a pledge until you send it? She said, can you give me some certainty, some surety that you're not just going to leave me high and dry and just use me and throw me away? I want some pledge. I want something from you that will guarantee that you're not just going to throw me away. And verse 18, he said, what pledge shall I give? And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Smart. So what did she say? She said, Judah, I want several things to guarantee you're not just going to throw me away. I want your signet ring. I want the ring that you wear that people identify with you. I want a cord and a staff. Uh, The leaders of clans all had staffs that had distinctive carvings on them that identified that particular person. So everybody, if they saw this staff with these carvings, they knew it would be Judah. So now she had him. So she has his signet ring, she's got his cord and his staff, that's all she needs, he sleeps with her, and she conceives, and then she leaves town. Then she arose, in verse 19, and departed, and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments again. And Judah sent the kid by his friend the Adolamite to receive the pledge from the woman's hand. He didn't find her. He asked the men of her place, saying, Where's the temple prostitute? That's who he thought he was sleeping with. Where's the temple prostitute who was by the road at Enaim?" And they said, There has been no temple prostitute here, which is true. (coughs) So he returned to Judah and said, I didn't find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, There has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, Now listen. Then Judah said, Let her keep them, lest we become a laughingstock. Lest we become a laughingstock. He's more concerned about being a laughingstock before the men of the city than he is before the almighty God that just killed two of his sons. More concerned about being a laughingstock by the community than being judged by the living God who drowned the whole world in Noah's flood and who burned thousands of people in Sodom and Gomorrah. His concern was whether he's not he's going to be a laughingstock before other men. That's more important to Judah than what God thinks of him and what God's going to do about this sin. What's more important to you? Is it more important what man thinks about you or what God thinks about you? It's more important to you what man thinks about you? You are going to commit sin after sin after sin. So here we see a patriarch, direct descendant, an uh, ancestor of Christ, more worried about other what other people would say about him than what the living God thinks. So. 34. Now it was about three months later that Judah was informed. Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has played the harlot. Behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then self righteous, hypocritical. Judah says, go get that woman and let's burn her. Ancestor of Jesus. If she's a prostitute and she's pregnant because of prostitution, go get that woman and let's burn her. Now, I want you to notice what's happening here. Judah is a judge. These people are coming before Judah in the gate of the city, who is sitting as an actual civil judge judging people, court. He would hold court. Now I inter- interject this because it's very important. The basic characteristics of civil government in the in the Old Testament is localism. And one of the greatest influences on the Constitution of the United States is the nature of the civil government in Old Testament Israel. If you don't believe that, I want you to get a book. It's a paperback. It's easy to read. It's called The Hebrew Republic. The Hebrew Republic a man named Wines, W-I-N-E-S. And the Hebrew Republic was Israel in the Old Testament. And the basic pillars and emphases of Old Testament Israel are woven right into the Constitution of the United States. That's what makes our Constitution so unique. For instance... Our Constitution believes in the separation of powers, right? That all power is not held by one man, but it's separated. Now I'm going to ask you a question, but don't answer. I don't want you to embarrass yourself. Because you have, the way you answer this question will tell whether or not you've been influenced by socialism or influenced by the Bible. Constitution, we have the separation of powers separated into how many powers? Don't answer, don't shake your head. Separated into how many powers? The average citizen on the street, if he knew anything at all, would say three, judicial, legislative, and executive, and he would be wrong. The Constitution of the United States Separate civil powers into four. And the 10th Amendment to the Constitution makes that clearer as a bill. That the separation of powers the Constitution requires in the civil government are legislative, judicial, executive, and state. Any powers not attributed to, by the Constitution to the federal government are given, are in the hands of the state. That's the fourth power. And uh, that's what a civil war was fought over. In the middle, in the middle of the 1800s, the, there was a civil war in this country fought over whether or not we were going to have four powers in the United States or just three. State's rights, state sovereignty, the state's authority to govern itself. Where did he get that? It was, uh, the power was supposed to be local. He got that from Old Testament Israel. That there was one country of 12 states, 12 sons of Israel, and there was a federal government that governed the relationship of all these 12 tribes. But then each of these 12 tribes had the authority to govern itself with no help and most particularly in the United States, it even goes more locally than the state, and that is to the county. Our founding fathers expected the county to be the most powerful institution of political power in the United States. We don't even think of that. But localism is one of the pillars of Old Testament politics. That And Judah was a judge, just like all of the patriarchs were locally. And all the patriarchs and the heads of tribes uh, had the authority to, to locally judge people. So the emphasis of the Hebrew Republic was localism. Not today. All the states have been bought by the federal government through welfare programs and all the rest entitlements. Now the federal government has octopus like authority. We lost in the Civil War. That was just by the way. So, (laughs) Judas the judge said this woman, we found this woman who's a prostitute and she's pregnant and the judge says, Burner. It was the God-ordained way of treating adulterers and adulteresses. Charged with adultery in the Hebrew Republic of the Old Testament. And you were found guilty in a court of law. you will be stoned to death. Adultery was considered a capital crime so that if you were engaged to marry or you were married and you committed immorality with anybody else, both you and that person would be executed by the state except for the priest's daughter. Our priest was so important in Israel, represented Christ, the representative of God to man and of man to God. And if his daughter or son committed adultery, they not only would be executed by stoning, their corpses would be burned. That's our God. You don't like our God? That seem unjust to you or overly harsh. It's only because you don't know how evil sin is. It's only because you don't have the same view of sin and evil that adultery God has. So here we are. But, but Joda is going to the extreme. This is not a daughter of a priest. So he's just going to the extreme. Say, burn this woman. So verse 25 was while she was being brought out, arrested, presuming now her hands are tied and she's on her way to be stoned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent her, her father-in-law to her father-in-law saying, uh, sir, I have one last word. One last word. And with child, the man to whom these things belong, I can see Judah's face. <laughs> but there she was holding his signet ring, and it's Child by the man to whom these things belong. She said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. And Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I am. Inasmuch that I I did not give her to my son Shelah. He didn't have relations with her ever again the rest of her life. So Judah's been caught. He's not trying to hide it. <clears throat> he said, I, I'm a worse sinner than she is. I should have given her my son as her husband earlier, and I did not held off out of superstition. I'm worse than she is. And so he did not have any relations with her the rest of her life. I think there's some repentance there. Verse 27. This is the last little part of the story. And it came about at the time she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth, one put out a hand And the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But it came about, as he drew back his hand, that, Behold, his brother came out. Then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. And afterward, his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand and he was named Zerah. What in the world is that story doing in the Bible? What does that have to do with anything? Tamar has twins, and they're in the midst of birth, and one sticks out his hand, the nurse ties a little red ribbon around it so she'll know which one came out first. And then he pulls his hand back in. And the younger son is born first. And the older one with the scarlet thread is born second. What does that have to do with anything? Has to do with the sovereign will of Almighty God. That's what we see throughout these patriarchs' life. God does things on purpose just to remind you he is the sovereign God. So it's usually the firstborn son in Old Testament Israel was was the leader. He was the main (coughs) inheritor. So this little son sticks out his hand, tie a ribbon around it, pulls it back, and in Paris, the younger is born. And Paris is one of the great-great-great-granddaddies of Jesus. You got to do it that way. but you know he's a sovereign God. He does what he pleases. Now I can imagine that people talked about that long afterwards. The people talked about do you remember that birth of Paris? You remember how weird it was? And the red ribbon and all that stuff? That was really weird. You remember who his mother was? Remember who his daddy was? And then it all comes back. So there's the story I don't have to preach again. <laughs> now I want to conclude with just one application. God is a God who kills people. Make sure he does not have to kill you. God is a God who kills people. Make sure he does not have to kill you. Let's pray. We do thank you for this unusual story. Thank you that you told us about it. Thank you for the lessons. We can learn from it. Thank you that our lives, our salvation, our eternity, everything, is dependent upon your sovereign will. That you have foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in time. Always accomplish your purposes. And nothing man does, not even the incest of Judah, nothing man does can hinder or overturn the sovereign will of Almighty God. So help us to rest our heads every night and in every crisis on your sovereign will. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.